A couple of years ago, my wife and I, when we were on vacation, we happened to go by Hearst Castle, and we wanted to go there eh, a couple times. It never had made the time to do it, and we finally did, and we drove in, and if you've never been there, it's a real, real impressive place. Now, it was built by William Randolph Hearst, and Hearst was one of the wealthiest men in the world at the turn of the 19th and the 20th century. He had a passion, and I mean a deep passion, for architecture. He had one on call, in fact, one of the most famous ones in California. He had this lady, it was a lady architect, by the way, and she did all his work. And the passion for fine architecture, you can see it in all Hearst Castle. And he had another passion, too a passion for fine art so he could fill that big castle because he had the money to do it. Well, stories told that he found a description of a piece of art in an art magazine, maybe it would have been called, or just he was in the know. He found a piece of art that he just had to have, and he sent his field agent, he had one of those on call too, and he sent him to Europe to find this piece of art. Well, the man looked around Europe. He didn't look around. He traveled around asking. Remember, they didn't have the Google machine then. They couldn't find anything by Internet, so they had to find where this thing was at. Well, after months of searching, they found it. And it said it was close to home. Well, how close was it? It was in Hearst's own warehouse with many of the treasures that he already owned that were packed in big boxes, big crates, ready to be put up. He had it sitting in his warehouse. Treasure that he already owned. Now, I tell that story because we can be that way. We are often that way, not understanding the treasures that we have been given from God, the treasures that we already owned and we don't put to use. Now, I'm not talking about treasures of art. I'm talking about spiritual treasures, blessing that belong to those who are in Christ Jesus. And these blessings, they'll never fade away. They're not going to rust. They're not going to decompose. And they're reserved in heaven for you. Well, Paul wrote to the church in, in Ephesians and Ephesus, excuse me, in the same way that he wrote to many of his other churches. The correspondence was always broken down like this, and at least I say always, most of the time. The first part, doctrine. The second part, how to live. Faith, then life. Teaching, then application. Doctrine, then duty. But often before he would begin his teaching, he would begin with what we would call today a eulogy. 
saying praises or singing praises about what someone has done, we just sang eulogies. We just sang hymns. And when we see eulogies, you're going, oh, man, this is so dead. I'm not saying our singing is dead. We sing truths, truths about God that open up our minds and our spirits to who he is, what he is, not songs about us, songs about him, truths about what God has done to shape the thinking of, in the case of Ephesus, the hearers and the readers that in turn guide the way that they live. And it is here in the next verses 3 to 14, in the next three weeks, we'll spend our time here. We're going to be mining from gold, as an old professor from my seminary would say. We are mining for gold in these next 12 verses. Well, three, there are three different sections in, this, in these 12 verses. And they all concern God's master plan concerning salvation. It can be viewed as the past, present, and the future. It also gives us the truths about each person of the triune God working together concerning man's salvation. Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Father's part in redemption, the Son's part in redemption, and the Holy Spirit's responsibility in this supernatural plan where those who are in Christ are blessed beyond measure. That's the name of our of our message today, blessed beyond measure. And if you're taking notes, you can put these words in parentheses. The Father's part in salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look this morning into the glorious truths in your word that reveal the blessings that you have provided for us, we thank you. We honor you. Give us ears to hear today what the Spirit has to say to us. May we understand what great blessings you have given us if we are in Christ. May we praise you for what you are doing and what you will be doing in the future. I pray these things in the beloved Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as I read this morning's passage from, of Scripture? It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. If you'd like a, if you need a Bible to read, it's on page 976 in a blue one in front of you to follow along. The word of the Lord says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Please be seated. Well, if you had talked to my wife or probably talked to the 
the men who work with me and, and Becky, this, I've been a bit overwhelmed about this passage. It's, uh, this passage is quite, quite an undertaking. In the language it was written, it's comprised of one sentence. I'm talking verses 3 to 14. In fact, it's the longest sentence in the Bible, if you want to know in the Greek language. In the English language, it's, it's not. In 2010, when I went, started going to school, my wife would often have to edit my, my work. And I had a terrible habit of run-on sentences. I wouldn't put periods. I wouldn't put commas. I would, it would just go and go and go and go and go. And she did it with... Well, she didn't do it with a red pen, but she did it with a red strike through on a Word document. You talk about feeling about this high when you were done. But she was a good editor, so thank you. But if we were editing Paul's stuff, dude, what are you thinking? 202 words? And we had to do this, these things as well. We had to diagram sentences nope, not even trying this one, not even attempting it. Well, thankfully, our English translators give us some periods and commas where we can take a breath. But what I can say is this, that Paul begins in this, in this passage, in these verses, he gives a summary. And what's that summary? It is praise to God. Give praise to God to God. That's what Paul means when he writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing God. It means he's praising him for what he's done. It's a, it could almost be synonymous. Now think with me. Can we bless God in a way that we are going, God blessed me with grace. We don't bless God with anything. He's not lucky to have you. He's definitely not lucky to have me. He blessed us with grace. So when Paul writes us, he's saying, we praise you, O God. Well, the questions are are these. Who are the blessings from? So he's he's saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to praise you, God. What are the blessings? What are the origins of these blessings that we give, we give praise to God for? And verse 3 gives us the answers to these questions. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, the answer, the one question would be, who are the blessings from? They're from God the Father. He's God and Father. He's one and the same. In the Old Testament, this was not something that was actually spoken of very often. In fact, God was, when he was defined, he was never defined as Father. He was only defined as Father as 15 times in the Old Testament. 15 times out of 1,448. 
In the New Testament, we have a totally different story. In, we have further revelation in the New Testament. Out of 413 times that God's named, 245 times he's named as the Father. God and Father. And by the way, Jesus is called who? He's called the Son of God. Son, Father. Well, the Father has provided these blessings. We can understand that. The Father provided the blessings. How? In physical, physical prosperity? In good health? No. In Christ. In Christ. Meaning when you were born again into God's family, you were given family riches. You're not poor. You're not paupers. We're rich. And we'll see later on, you share the riches of God's grace, God's glory, and God's mercy, and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, what are these blessings? What are these riches? I just mentioned them. But let's look at the verse. He continues, Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every means every. All of them. So they're spiritual blessings. They're not material blessings. That's where folks will get, they'll get off track. Why don't I have that great house? Why don't I have that good car? Why don't I have that great husband? Why don't I have that great wife? No, you have spiritual blessings that have been promised to you. They're blessings that are listed in these coming verses. But what does spiritual blessing mean? What does spiritual blessing mean? It means the source of the blessing. The blessings come directly from the Spirit of God. Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, In the Old Testament, God promised His earthly people, Israel, material blessings as a reward for their obedience. Today, He promises to supply all our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But He does not promise to shield us from every poverty or pain. The Father has given us every blessing of the Spirit, everything we need for a successful, satisfying Christian life. The spiritual is far more important than the material. Do we believe that? We must believe it. Well, the origin of the spiritual blessing, the heavenly places in the heavenly places. Again, the source is the Father who has blessed us in Christ. The heavenlies are where Christ is seated right now. Christ is there. He's seated. It means He has no other work to do. He's done all that He needs to do. His work's done. And in a month or so, we'll look at this important truth that God has raised us up in the heavenlies. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places. We're with Christ. Before we move on, I want to make the point again. I want to stress the point. 
Are we promised only a little small amount of God's blessing? No. Every bit of it promised every spiritual blessing. And if these things are written or true, are they true? Yes, they are. We need to begin with to live like children of the king. We shouldn't be living like paupers. Oh, woe is me. No, not how woe is me. How blessed am I because of Christ. The Scottish expositor Alexander McLaren wrote, and I like it. I'd almost try to say it, but I would say it in a Scottish lilt, but I'd end up being sounding like Arnold Schwarzenegger, so I'm not going to say it. But pretend as I read it, as I read that in this Scottish lilt, it sounds much better. We may have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand and bids us take all that we want. If a man is admitted into a bullion vault of, of the bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he is poor? Whose fault is it that Christian people generally have such scanty portions of the free riches of God? We have riches in Christ. Well, why do we give praise to God? Because He chose and predestined us. Oh, the theological arguments that have taken place over these verses and this particular verse in particular. God's sovereignty and human free will. How do they fit together? How do they fit together? And I'm speaking of the doctrine of election. Not election, a political election. I'm talking election chosen. I've heard it said that a seminary professor was quoted. He said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But try to exp explain it away and you may lose your soul. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That salvation begins with God, no one will argue. They won't argue that. Everyone will agree with that. Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Okay? In Romans, we're told that the lost sinner left to his own way, they will not seek God. No one seeks God. No, not one. And throughout the Gospels, we see and hear over and over and over again, Christ came to seek the lost. So he seeks the sinners. Well, what does the Bible teach us regarding election, about being chosen? There are three different categories. First, there is what's called the theocratic that means a national choice. I'm talking now about Israel. Israel being chosen by God as a nation. The chosen, the chosen folks, they, in Deuteronomy 7, for you, 
Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It always speaks about choosing someone out of a group, whether it be a group of nations, a group of people, or a group, a single person out of a group. This has nothing to do with national salvation because in Romans 9, it is very clear that not all Israelites are saved. Not all are sons. All sons of Israel are not all Christians. The second way that a person is chosen is they are chosen vocationally. In the Old Testament, which tribe was chosen to be priests? Levites. None of the other 11. Only Levites were chosen. In the New Testament, Jesus chose called 12 specific disciples out of all the people who were following him. There were more people than the 12, but he chose them. Last week we saw Paul was chosen to be what? The apostle to the Gentiles. He was chosen out of, out of anybody? Why did God choose him? Because it was his choice. The third specific way that God chooses is in a salvific way. It means salvation. It's where God specifically draws a person to himself. He draws someone to himself. He calls someone. Maybe a way to think about this. Have you ever been to a metal scrapyard? And the magnet goes over and the magnet turns on. And everything that's metal is lifted up out of a, most of the time, of a truck or a pile. And what's left? Anything that's not metal. Even aluminum is left because it's not the quality that the magnet is looking for. Wood, hay, stubble is left. That's for another story. Jesus said this in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. To be poetic, the doctrine, doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not human speculation. When people get in trouble, we start putting our own thoughts, our own ideas, into where we think that maybe God might need our protection. Election wasn't thought up by Luther or Calvin or Sproul or MacArthur or even Paul himself. It's a revelation from God. No matter how mind-blowing it is, because it doesn't make sense. How? How can this happen? But it is revelation from God. Look at verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, why is Paul praising God for this? Why is he sharing this with the Ephesian believers? Well, first, because it's true. It's truth. It also gives confidence 
It gives you confidence to, to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to someone else. And if you're like me, I would have lost my salvation a whole long time ago. But if God chooses, you're safe in His arms. He drew you. He called you to Himself. It gives you confidence. You didn't wave your arms and say, hey, God, notice me. Jodis, Jodis, excuse me. Joel said something very, 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 very precise and accurate this morning. He said this morning, when he was six years old, God found him. It wasn't, I found him. God chose him. The plan was that you were chosen before the world began. You did nothing to merit any good thing from him. Nothing. But what about human responsibility? What about human responsibility? Because we are responsible. The Scriptures declare that we are responsible to exercise our own will. These are two things that go right next to each other. We are responsible to exercise our own will. In Joshua, the Israelites were wavering between following God or not. And he said, choose this day whom you will serve. Make sure I'm pointing at you because that's the way he probably would have been doing this because he was in their face. Choose this day whom, the, whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A direct choice. You choose. Jesus said that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. You choose. But many people refused and refused to come to him. They made and make a deliberate choice. But yet scriptures declare that no one comes to Christ, no one receives Christ as Savior and Lord unless they have been chosen by God. Two equal truths. Seemingly opposite and irreconcilable truths. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with him declaring both. The late theologian J.I. Packer wrote in 1961's these truths, and I quote, What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do, and mistakenly imagine that they insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? The root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church, the intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and let God be wiser than men, and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. It doesn't make sense. I don't care. God is higher. 
His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I continue with Packer. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the Scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblically and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds. Let me continue that and let me repeat that. Natural to our perverse minds because we want to make sense of it rather than what God has said. It's not surprising that even good men fall victim to it. Hence, this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it seems apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. Close quote. One more time, we look at verse 4. Even as he chose us, in him. He chose us, the word chose, is written in what is called the middle voice in Greek, which means the subject who is God, the Father himself, performs the action, choosing, choosing, He chooses the object, which is us. He performs the action for his own purpose. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because we needed him to. He chose us for his own glory before the foundation of the world, for the purposes of that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That we would be changed and conformed into the image of his son. Church, I suppose the easiest way to summarize verse 4 would be simply to say this, he chose us to be holy. He chose us to be holy. He chose us to be set apart. It's the telltale sign of being elected. Moving towards holiness. Not meaning that we are there. Not meaning that we are holy or we will be holy on this side of eternity. But we are constantly moving towards Christ. Being conformed into His image. And again, if you are living like hell and you think that you've been saved from hell and don't care about living the way that you're living, that you don't care at all, I would doubt, I would say that you are probably not saved. Moving towards holiness is a theological term that's called sanctification. 
It's defined as a progressive work of God and man. Notice that work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is God saving us from our sins, not saving us to remain in them. Verses 5 and 6 declare another spiritual blessing, a truth that gives us reason to praise and bless the Father. He predestined us to belong to Him. He predestined us to belong to Him. Predestination means to determine beforehand. And it always speaks of a believer. Predestination. When someone is predestined, it always speaks of a believer. Gruden says it this way. It's another term for election. Look at verse 5. So because of His grace, His undeserved favor, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And we need to make sure that we understand why the Father is choosing us through Christ before the world began. It was the reason, it was to adopt us into His family. Can you believe that? To adopt you into His family? Wow, the familial relationship is what he himself wanted. The ESV translators translated Eudokian, which means to the purpose, purpose of his will. To the purpose of his will. It can also be translated this way, and I like it this way much better. Mucho better. It can also be translated to the good pleasure of His will. The good pleasure. The NASB, the kind intention. God's, His pleasure, the kind intention, His love. It describes the delight and the pleasure that it gives the Lord to call people to Himself. He has great pleasure. Don't take this in a crass way. The bottom line that is, is if you're a child of God, you weren't an oops. You weren't a mistake. He chose you. And now you have the legal rights to the kingdom, not having to live in the squalor, the squalor of your old family. We'll get to this passage in a few weeks, but it's too good to, to leave it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice that, the sons of disobedience, the sons of the devil, among whom we all once lived, Again, all means all. We all were there. 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you see how those who are his kids are blessed beyond measure? We're saved. I hope you do. So the question is, why did he do what he did? Why did the father choose who he would and predetermined to adopt them as sons and daughters? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, his beloved son, Christ. It's another word for Christ. Just as Paul began the passage with praise, he ends the passage with praise. It's God's glorious grace that is on display. It is all God, all about him. And hear me, for many of my generation and the generations that have followed and the generations after them, this comes as a rude and inconvenient truth. My wife will laugh at me because she said this to me already today. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. Can we hear an amen? It's about God and what he's done. It makes maybe more sense to say it this way. God gets all the glory but we get the joy. We get the joy. Well, how should we respond? How should we respond to this? With more than just words, which are important, but with transformed, purposeful lives. I'll leave you with David's words from Psalm 63. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and with rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for of you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Let's sing to him.